Well, thank you for that introduction. Uh, first and foremost, I'm just glad to see you all here this morning. I didn't know we lost an hour. Uh, and so I spent 20 minutes in my kitchen this morning debating whether I was crazy or not because my phone said it was 9.14, the oven said it was 8.14, and I was like, well, do I leave now? Should I wait for an hour? I don't know what to do. Uh, so I said, well, I'm just going to go and we'll see what happens. So certainly I am, am extremely honored to be here. The way I came to West, and, and I should say I'm extremely lucky for the second day in a row, I happen to be somewhere where the D.C. Labor Chorus is singing, so I must know the right people. <laughs> I, I came to Wes and, and to speak to that, that work, and, and I think to you know, have some friends here to know something about the commitment of the community, actually through a very good friend of mine, Stuart Anderson, uh, who works here in D.C. is a formerly incarcerated person who works around a number of issues, and he was like, Man, you gotta you gotta get with these Washington Ethical Society people, man. <laughs> up off 16th Street, I'm gonna talk to them about you. Bring them up here, and that that was maybe a, about a year ago. And I had the opportunity to come up here and, and and do a talk about my book. And really, the rest has has just been history. We've been we've been building uh, together since then. You know the the topic that I chose, and, and and perhaps it's quite apropos to have friends here from from the Unitarian Congregation in Fairfax, bending the ark. And many of us know the quote, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which we, of course, mostly associate with Dr. King, but who, in fact, the progenitor is Theodore Parker, a famous Unitarian minister from the mid-1800s. And I was just reminded the other day, an abolitionist who would preach with a pistol in the pulpit when he would preach because they were always concerned about the realities of the Fugitive Slave Act and thoroughly committed, you know, down to their life, really, to the liberation of, of slaves and willing to lay it on the line. And it, it's funny how when you conceive of these things months ahead of time, you know, you think about it in one context and it shifts to another context because, you know, I was thinking about this on Friday night. I was up late seeing, you know, the things that had happened in Chicago and the context of which I was coming here. And I, I couldn't help but think about Reverend Parker and some of the rhetoric that we've heard about the removal of immigrants from this country and the unbelievable parallels that, in my view, exist between that and the heroic resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act that happened all across this country, all across the North and the South, too. And I just found myself thinking after seeing how Trump had canceled this rally and there's thousands of people there and, you know, this guy has just been rampaging all over the country and saying the most terrible things and I'm reading the Washington Post and it's talking about how the reason they ended up canceling the thing was there was an 18-year-old kid uh, who I guess had been an organizer in Chicago over the past two years who I had organized all these people and they were close to the stage and the Secret Service said, well, you know, you better not do it because these rabble-rousers, these young kids, you know, they might take the mic from you. And so he canceled the rally and all I could really think about at the time is, well, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend towards justice. <laughs> I, I think that one of the things is what is justice? What is liberation? And, and, you know, perhaps we could say that it's subjective and it means different things to different people. But, you know, I, I actually will say I'm a little bit more partisan about it. You know, there is a, the, we think about in our politics now the, the Tea Party movement. There's a guy named Frederick Hayek who is the intellectual economic father of the Tea Party. And he once said that 
the best thing about capitalism in particular and class society at large is that it prevents humans from acting based on their nature. And he goes on to say that the problem with humans is that they're too collaborative by nature. That for some reason, people always want to come together and help each other and put the collective good above the individual interest. And that's so terrible. And thankfully, we've created these systems to keep people focusing only on themselves, not on the collective. And I happen to agree with him. I mean, I think beyond all of the different layers of just reality, and I think the way you see it the most is in natural disasters, how people from just all over every walk of life, no one really asks people what your political... People just come in and start helping. And I was down in Hurricane Katrina, and I've been in several hurricanes and, and tornadoes and blizzards, and you see it there. And I do think that that is the truth. So, you know, what is, is justice is I think that it's really living in a way that comports with that humanity, in a way where our collective existence as a human organism, in conjunction with the planet, which I think we must talk about now, is that, that to live in, in, in real harmony, that is what justice is. And to be liberated is to no longer be seeking justice. Because if you're seeking justice, you are not free because you already are essentially saying that uh, something is not right somewhere and it must be changed. And I think for us, thinking about what does it mean to be liberated, we must always connect it to this ability to understand justice as, you know, you could say it's almost equality, but it's more than that. I think that it's, it's, it's a deeper connection between human beings that we've been denied for so long and restoring that connection. And I think that can mean many different things, and I don't want to even necessarily define fully what it means. I wanted to leave you with that philosophical concept and hope that it starts to connect with you in some way in the way that you are going about your daily life. And when I think about that in the context of this quote, and the way I originally came up with the topic uh, when Amanda and I were first ta talking is I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. And, and, you know, I think that this is a community of people who are all in some way, I believe, seeking liberation. Uh, we could talk about the specifics of it, but certainly I think that's part of why we're all in this room today. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, who's also an activist and an organizer about, you know, what are the ways in which we keep ourselves going? in this work. I mean, it's so difficult and there's so much. I mean, I know that I opened saying about how I, I certainly believe that the basic reality of humanity is a collective shared desire to exist in a way where everyone can feel valued and feel worth. But I think when we say that, and even if we recognize it on a deep level, it can be difficult to see in the day-to-day -day grind and life. And oftentimes it seems that the hardest thing to do is the right thing. And the easiest thing to do is the worst thing. And that so many of us, and I don't know if it's even a value judgment, so many of us, our daily existence is predicated on how do we survive in a way that doesn't transgress our values when everything seems against us. So it becomes very important to think of ways to support ourselves, whether it's collectively or individually, when we seem to be going up against such powerful forces that often seem 
completely impersonal and cultural. I mean, that's why everyone says human nature is dog-eat-dog individuality, that that's the only way that it can ever be. People are only going to be out for themselves. I mean, these are the messages that are reinforced. So we talk about systems and people and ideologies, but oftentimes it seems to transcend that. People don't understand why is this happening. Even if you can explain it, why is this happening? Because it seems in your gut to have some cosmic negativity to it. And this quote, the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice, I think is one of those things that we say to ourselves and that we bring into our sort of just daily mantras as something that helps sustain us in this work. Because when it seems as if you can only, you are only losing. When it seems as if everything is stacked against you. When it seems as if there is really no way to make an impact in this world, in this society, and especially as an individual where it's so easy to feel so isolated, that it certainly feels very good to then be able to think of the past and of history and of others. And, you know, we all do this. I certainly do it. The abolitionist movement, I think, is the, perhaps the, the touchstone in so many ways for me. I mean, it, it's worth remembering that it was, and there's that other quote, right, that the, uh, it's always darkest before the dawn. It was the decade leading up to the Civil War where the slave power became the most powerful, where it seemed the least possible that slavery could ever be ended. They passed the Fugitive Slave Act. It was 1855. You talk about Congress being gridlocked now. Uh, Charles Sumner, they called him the Lion in the Senate, liberal guy, abolitionist, sitting in his desk. He had previously offended some slave owner. So the slave owner's cousin, a guy named Preston Brooks, also in Congress, walks up to Charles Sumner with his cane, with like a you know little gold whatever on the top, and beats him unconscious in the chair. And Sumner's like a huge guy for that time, 6'5", whatever. Uh, so he can't even get out of the desk. They had these little desks. So he can't get out the desk. He can't move. And he's just beating him, trying to kill him, trying to kill him on the floor of the Congress and didn't face any charges against him. And that's the kind of attitude that was existing. And so it's easy to think back and, and, and look and say, oh, well, it was always just inevitable that abolition was going to happen, that slavery was going to pass, or whatever it may have been. But for the folks in those communities, folks like Theodore Parker, it was a completely different situation. It was one of complete siege and embattlement, one where you know you was, it was tiny communities of of primarily Christians and, and some uh, Germans who had come after the Revolution of 1848, small bastions of, of progressive thinking anti-slavery people. Uh, I always think about Harriet Tubman, you know, and I tell this story to people all the time whenever they tell me they're, uh, you know, feeling, feeling tired is, you know, and she would take the slaves out uh, and, you know, they're running through these swamps. You've got dogs nipping on your heels. You're moving at night. You've got to move at night. You've got a torch with you. You're in a swamp. You're trying to follow some star. I mean, you know, it seems like you might get halfway there and you might say, well, you know, wait a second. Uh, we should just go back. This is too much. And, you know, Harriet Tubman used to always, she had this old rusty pistol and she'd pull out and she'd say, it's too late to turn back now. Uh, but I often think that if, that if that was what they were facing, what are we complaining about? 
uh, you got a cell phone, you know, living in a house, you're eating every day. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to sort of relatively say, like, okay, in history, people have faced these great and tremendous obstacles, but at the end of the day, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, and no matter how great the obstacle, eventually something will change. And I think in some ways it's, it's, it's important to have those sorts of cultural, social, psychological, whatever you want to call them, touchstones inside that allow you to keep moving. But then I thought, especially in the context of coming here today, for those of us actively seeking liberation, how do we engage with this quote and with this idea? Because what does it do to us when we have a sense of inevitability? Because I think a sense of inevitability also breeds complacency. And that in the context of our world right now, I think it's very easy to just write people off and just say, well, look, those five million people who are out there supporting Donald Trump and three million supporting Ted Cruz and all these red states and all these just crazy people who believe all these things and I don't know what's wrong with them. You know, just we, we just forget about them. You know, we're here in D.C., Montgomery County, Liberal City, we're going to West, you know, we're having, you know, we got a community of people who hold our values and, and who also are willing to act on our values. And even if perhaps we won't have any support, eventually something will happen. And so it breeds complacency within us, a complacency that, in fact, that uh, I would say is also somewhat defeatist because it means that we, in some ways, don't fully believe that we are Right. And I, I was talking to a family member about this the other day, and I said, you know, it's just ironic that we feel so passionately about so many of these issues, and we feel so right. And I think, you know, in the case of, of, of many of us, we, we are right. But we also seem to have very little uh, belief that other people can see the truth within us. And that what we believe to be not only morally right but logically true can't actually be explicated and explained to people who come from a completely different worldview than us, a completely different area, that there's nothing really shared between us somehow and that the values are almost like DNA and that they are inherited from our parents and that ultimately we just have to hope that someday something will change somewhere along that moral arc and whatever happens, happens. I think... But I almost changed my topic when I thought of that, I should say. <laughs> because I said, well, wait a second, maybe this is, the wrong, this is the wrong agenda to bring here. But then I thought to myself, well, let me think a little bit deeper about this. Because you could read it as a sense of inevitability. But I think you could also read it as a sense of responsibility. Because when we think about history, and we talk about impersonal forces, I feel like it presents itself to us as the most impersonal force. Because great things seem to be done only by great people. And I think we often forget that great people are only great people in history. At the time, they're very normal. You know, the story of how Martin Luther King became the head of the Montgomery bus boycott, I think, is a great example of this. They're in the meeting, and many of you know hear the story in general that Rosa Parks, you know, was not just some tired woman, but a true activist 
Uh, and in fact, leading up to that, there have been two or three people who had also refused to give up their seat. There had been one young woman right before who was ready to fight, but uh, she was a single mother with a child out of wedlock. In the 1950s, they felt like, well, she'll be discredited. Uh, but Rosa Parks, not only was she an activist, but she was someone who was deeply, deeply uh, respected in the community. And so people felt, well, if we bring uh, Rosa Parks up here, even a number of white people who know her and respect her in the community may look at the issue differently. So they're in the meeting uh, called with all these ministers locally. And this is a huge, huge task that they're trying to overcome here. And several bus boycotts had already happened. There had been one in Baton Rouge in 1948. And the rule of thumb, so these are months activists, they're talking about this. So they know, people in the room know, the rule of thumb is that you couldn't make it beyond two weeks. And so a boycott, bus boycott wasn't the tactic. So no minister of the black ministers, uh, you know, there's one white minister, a guy uh, who's the head of the Lutheran Church in Montgomery. I want to say his name was Greats, was his real name. You've got to look this guy up. He didn't even know where he was going, and he was from, like, Chicago, and they were like, yeah, you're going to Montgomery, Alabama, and you're going to be, and it was the black Lutheran church, and this is, like, a white German immigrant, or, like, first-generation immigrant. He has no idea, doesn't know anything about the South. Uh, He buys a house in the black side of town, uh, and so all uh, white people hated him, and they firebombed his house three or four times, but instead of backing down and leaving, he actually became one of the most stalwart members of the, the, the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, and in fact, and I know this is an aside, but it's a great story, uh, he was the one who, and the final day when they, they won the big victory, now remember, his house had been bombed three, four times, they won the big victory, he was the minister that they brought up to open the mass meeting, uh, the celebratory meeting, and he, he started with the the famous uh, uh, Bible verse, when I was a child, I spake as a child, uh, so on and so forth, and now that I'm an adult, put away childish things. And before you could finish the quote, the whole place rises and just uh, explodes, because certainly the meaning of that quote and certainly that sign, I am a man from Memphis, I think that was what was happening. But, you know, that being said, the way King gets in there is they're all saying, it's so E.D. Nixon, labor organizer, tough guy, he's like, what's on all you ministers? I thought y'all were supposed to be tough. I thought you were supposed to be community leaders. Don't you want to stand up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so if you, but if you're scared, then fine. Then we'll just, we won't do it. Uh, and King, who's 27, uh, has just moved down there to Montgomery. No real plans on being any sort of activist minister, but he doesn't like being called a coward. So he steps up and said, well, Brother Nixon, I'm not scared. And he says, well, then you be the president. And they made him the president of the Montgomery Improvement <laughs> Association. And there it was. And so when we think of the quote, that's why I like to say it also is a sense of responsibility because, you know, we think so back and we say, well, how did they ever do these great things? They, I don't think they fully knew. And I think you would, people, they, I mean, they just acted on, on whether it was faith, whether it was, was just belief, whether it was morals, whether it was politics, whatever it was, people just acted and in the course of the struggle they became who they are. And so the reason why the arc of the moral universe is long is not because the universe in and of itself is just, you know, delivering things to us, but that, in fact, people have consistently and never stopped working towards that human nature that I mentioned in the beginning. And no matter how much they're trying to separate people, no matter how much divisions are created, no matter how real those divisions may be in reality, It has never, ever, ever stopped people from working to change that reality. 
to move to a new, more liberated plane, to connect with that human nature, which I think is what really drives us so deeply is that those of us who are progressive people, who are seeking liberation, is our knowledge deep down inside each other that humanity is connected and that we should all live together in respect and harmony, that that's something about that just feels right and that people continue to work towards that. And no matter what the obstacles, that ultimately means that that moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. So what I take from it is that, yes, it is important to look back, to reach back. The principle of Sankofa, of course, moving forward while looking back. But that ultimately staying grounded in the present is what's going to sustain us. And that when we're looking for what it is that can sustain people in this fight for liberation, this fight to connect with something that feels right but that everything in society reinforces as wrong, is not to look necessarily to history, although we need to look to it for examples and tactics and strategies, but to look into ourselves. And that it's the collective struggle that we wage together that will sustain us. It's communities just like this. I mean, this is ultimately, that is the essence, really, of the civil rights movement, if you talk about that. It wasn't that there was one leader. Uh, I, I don't even know how it has even gotten translated that there was one leader. Uh, people say there's one leader, and then they list six people as leaders of the civil rights movement. Uh, <laughs> But the community they created within itself created hundreds of leaders, thousands of leaders, really. The people who you never know about. I actually read a great article about that uh, when the whole issue came up of, like, who was really in Alabama and who supported civil rights in the presidential election. It was a great piece. And it just said that at the end of the day, it's not about, you know, whether Bernie Sanders was there, whether John Lewis was there. It's about the fact that there were thousands of people who were involved whose names we will never know but who oftentimes play just as important roles, and every role is important in so many different ways. Uh, and that that collective understanding of our collective ability to control our own lives, we bend the arc. And that's the social justice imperative, I think, in the 21st century now, when so much of, of, of what has happened, so much of what came forward, I think, from the civil rights movement that was positive, from the labor rights movement, from the movement for women's liberation, all these things where people were thinking about how human beings live closer and more in harmony and more in respect with each other are being rolled back. And so the question that we have for ourselves is what are we going to do? Are we going to just build our small limited communities of like-minded people, which is the temptation now, especially with social media and the internet. You know, for, for young folks, it's, you know, I just turned 30, it's funny how you feel like some people still think, oh, you're so young, and some people are like, oh, you're so old. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's easier than it's ever been to create closed-off communities and echo chambers of people who only think alike and only talk alike and spend all your time dealing purely with those folks. So in the 21st century, it's easier than ever. There's more big business money behind making us feel that the most important thing is our individuality in contradistinction to all other people who are around us. A friend of mine in New York said, how funny is it that I live in a building with five, like 5,000 people, one of those big New York buildings, and I only know three of my neighbors. Uh, it's easier than ever for us to be separated. And I think the social justice imperative of the 21st century, beyond any particular issue, there are many issues. We could list them, but the reality is the issues rarely change. I mean, when Dr. King was saying... Uh, 
was it poverty, war, and racism, the three evils, I think we could list the same three right now and say we're just as afflicted by them, even if it's in a different way. But beyond just the particular issues, the social justice imperative, I think, is to restore the agency of us as individuals, the belief that things can actually change, the belief that not only can they change, but we can be the ones that change them, that we don't have to be anyone else other than who we are to do it. This is when we look back what we learn from the history. This is what can ground us in the moment that we are in today. And I think put us forward in the 21st century in an area where we can grab that arc and bend it towards justice. Will we succeed? I think ultimately we will. When? I don't know. But do we have the ability to do it? Yes, absolutely. And I think when we think of this quote, when we think of the struggle for liberation, when we think of what we are doing today, the most important thing we must restore is our ability to make change. It's been wiped away from us. It's been taken away. Most people think the most they can do, you know, I talk to so many teenagers, is that, you know, getting on Facebook People say, oh, why are they just doing Facebook activism? Because most people think that's all that they really can do. They don't have the frame of reference to understand what has happened in the past. And not only that, they feel that some generations from the past have betrayed them. And why would they follow in the footsteps of those who couldn't carry through their own commitment? And I think that there are many challenges wrapped in that. But I just want to close once again by saying it's us in ourselves that can make this change, but only if we really believe it and start to restore it in our everyday life. I don't think there's anyone, I don't care who you are and what your background is, that can't be reached with the message of justice and liberation. They might not want to be reached initially, but I do think that thing that just makes it feel right inside of us, and that's what comes out in natural disasters, and that's what I mentioned it, that that can be translated into a true political consciousness that can really change this country and change this world because it's not about nationality. It's about humanity. And if the climate challenge doesn't teach us more than anything else, if we don't come together, the whole species isn't even going to be able to live here anyway. Uh, so we got a timeline. We got a time clock on it. But nevertheless, we have the power in our hands to actually do something before time is up. So I just thank you so much uh, to the West family, to everyone here uh, who has come to join, to Amanda, uh, who really offered me this opportunity in a way that was just very humbling and very honoring to me. So I look forward to just continuing to move forward in this journey for collective liberation together. Uh, as we have in the past year, on forward through 2016, and as long as it takes. So thank you again.